We're in a sermon series called Help Wanted. The Lord has put out a a job description, a want ad. He wants people to work for him. Last week, we looked at uh, Jesus' help wanted ad. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few, and Jesus is looking for people who will work for him. We talked about how it's so hard for companies to find good employees, and the Lord is in the same situation. He's looking for people who love him and love the job he's given us. And when he says harvest, I was talking with uh, someone who's a farmer, and he says, there's so much work for me to do right now. Could you pray for me that I can get it all done? Can you pray that it would dry up so I can get out in the fields? Because you pray that the machinery works well so I can get it all done. And when the Lord uses the word harvest, he's not talking about farming. He's talking about saving people. He's talking about saving people, and he uses that analogy of, of the harvest, of bringing the wheat in from the field, Just like we bring the wheat in from the field, there's a bunch of people out there. The people are the wheat. A bunch of people who will know and love the Lord if we just have laborers to go out in that field and bring them in. From that passage, it seems like there's guaranteed success. What the Lord just needs is people who will love him and love the job. The people that take his job are the disciples. And before we set out to do this job last week, we talked about are we going to do this job for the Lord or not? And I think the main thing that matters when we look at whether we're going to work for the Lord or not is whether we believe it's valuable work or not. I've done both in my time, and I, I respond much differently if I think the work is valuable or if it isn't. I used to work at the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis, right downtown, first and first. Beautiful building on the river. And uh, I worked in the cash department, which was in the basement of the building, right down the hallway from where the tellers were. There was guys with machine guns that guarded that thing. At all hours of the day, the armored trucks would come in, the guys with the machine guns would come out, they'd open the gates, the trucks would come in. The tellers had to get there at a certain time in the morning, and they got locked in their rooms, and they could not leave because it was so secure. And there was $2 billion in that room, and adjusted for inflation, there was $75 gazillion in that room. <laughs> this was 12 years ago, 13 years ago. And I sat down the hall from that, and they had a number that they kept as they counted the money, the number that was in the vault, and then cash department upstairs, the accounting department, they had a number from all that was supposed to come in and supposed to go out. And at the end of the day, those numbers needed to match. We needed to make sure that we had the right amount of money in the vault. And it was my job to make sure that that, that, that numbers matched. And there's a lot of ways that could go wrong. There was a lot of computing issues along the way that could make it go wrong, or there was just miscounting. And if that number was off and I couldn't find any errors in the computing system, then that was a big deal because that meant somebody got robbed. And so my job was fairly important. I had to stay there, make sure those numbers matched. If they didn't, it meant that somebody didn't get paid. Either we didn't get paid, either the customers didn't get paid, or we got robbed. And we're sitting there talking about $2 billion. It's very serious. And since it was so serious, the other reason why that job is so important is not a single employee in the entire building got to go home until those numbers matched. From me down at the basement of the cash department all the way up to the president of the Minneapolis Federal Reserve, who sometimes you can see the new guy on. He's getting interviewed like crazy nowadays talking about inflation. He couldn't go home either. And so I worked hard at that job to make sure those numbers matched. And then on the flip side, that wasn't, you know, that was mostly an end-of-the-day job. They had to find other stuff for me to do the rest of the day. 
And I had a lot of other tasks there that didn't seem to do anything at all. And I worked really hard at this one task and these other tasks. I was like, What's, what is the point of this? We had this one thing called a CircWire. Now I had updated, you know, up-to-date computers for 2007. But the CircWire, whatever it was, was so old, I had to log in, get to the C-prompt, go to mainframe. Remember the little C-prompt, little green thing? Yeah, mainframe. Yeah, I had to get into mainframe. The mouse didn't even work in that thing. I had to tab through all the fields to enter a number, 42 of those. You couldn't even tell, you know, just what is going on? Red, green, blue, little words all over the place. And I had to enter, I got this number on a fax machine and my coworker who had been there for 28 years showed me how to do this, trained me in when I started. She said, every day we enter the CircWire. And I go, what's the CircWire? She goes, I don't know. Every day we get this fax from Federal Reserve of Dallas and we go over in the mainframe and we type it in and then it goes somewhere else. And I said, who looks at it? What does it mean? I don't, I don't know. I just, for 28 years, I take the CircWire, I enter it in the mainframe and I put the paper in this tray right here. <laughs> I said, I'm not doing the CircWire anymore. <laughs> I'm going to find out what this thing does. And so I didn't. And I worked there for two years, and I never did the CircWire. And nobody ever commented once. <laughs> and if we believe the work is important, we'll do it. And if we don't believe the work is important, we won't. And what do you think of the work of the Lord? When you look at your life, have I done it? Do I want to do it? And if not, the question is, why don't you think this is important? So today we're going to look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 10, and we're going to ask ourselves, what is the job that God has given us, and what is the importance of it? We're going to start in chapter 10, verse 8. The Apostle Paul says, But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. When I uh, was a youth pastor, I was, a, I was recruited for the job, actually. I graduated from college. Uh, my wife, Sarah, was still at college, and somebody came from the community to her at the college where she worked at campus ministry and said, we're looking for a youth pastor. Do you know anybody? And she said, well, my boyfriend. And so she told me about this job, and I went, and I, I was like, well, I'm not Lutheran. And I went, and I applied at this Lutheran church, or I went and visited this Lutheran church, and they talked to me about the position, and we talked about theological differences, and they were like, yeah, all that's fine. Just don't teach anything contrary to what we're teaching. I was like, wow, they're super laid back. And then I went to visit the students for the youth pastor job, and there was 44 kids coming every Wednesday night with their Bibles. And I went around, I just asked the kids, I said, because I knew this about, you know, Lutherans, stereotypically, I said, uh, how are you saved? And are you saved? And most of the kids went, I, I don't know, and, I, and I said, how are you saved? And they go, I was baptized. <laughs> I thought, this is the easiest mission field in the history of the world. We should all just become Lutheran youth pastors because if these kids are going to heaven, they don't know how. And so we did this thing. We, we did Romans 10, 8 night, and we stood up front and we explained about the faith and the word of faith that Paul talks about here. We are saved by faith. And we had opportunities. I remember opportunities in, in that youth group. I said, if you want to confess with your mouth because you believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, come up front, confess in your heart, confess with your mouth that you believe in your heart, and that faith will save you, that faith in Jesus Christ. And we had all these students come up, 
and say that. And a lot of them didn't as well. Now, if you've ever been to Lutheran church, one of the things that they do is confirmation. They love confirmation, right? They baptize you when you're an infant. And then when you're like 13 years old and old enough to do it, your parents make you go to confirmation. They make you go to these classes. They make you stand in front and they make you say that you believe. But not all those kids believe at all, actually, it turns out. And when we do this in youth group, the ones that believed would stand forward and have an opportunity to share that with those who didn't. And it was fantastic. Romans 10, 8, 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, a lot of people, who, especially those who don't read the Bible, right? they hear a verse like that, or they hear verse John, John 3, 16, and they completely don't understand what the word believe means. If you read the Bible, the word believe does not mean that I agree intellectually that God exists. That's not what believe means. A lot of people think I'm saved because I believe there is a God. Not at all. As James clarifies, the demons believe there's a God. It's not doing them any good. And so the, what does the word believe mean here? Well, believe what? That Jesus Christ is Lord. Lord. Not that he exists. Not that he's real. But he's your Lord. The faith in your heart that saves you is one that says, Jesus Christ is my Lord. He's my God. I just don't, I don't think that there's a God out there somewhere and that he, he might have created us, he sees us, he knows us. But I'm saved because Jesus Christ is my Lord. I serve him. He saved me. He died on the cross for me. I want to make all of my decisions to please him because he's God. Soon we got to do a sermon series called Why Jesus Christ is God. It's just, it's my favorite thing in the gospels. Jesus is so creative in teaching that he's God. We had a, a large Muslim population move into where I lived in Minnesota and uh, I was getting questions a lot about that. Like, a lot of Christians believe that Christians and Muslims serve the same God, and we don't at all. And so I read the Quran, and I went and I talked with this man, uh, the man who was, a, he was a, a president of the Islamic Center of Minnesota. And I went in, I talked with him, and I just wanted to know more about his faith, because I read the Quran, and, and I was honestly like, how, how can anyone believe this? And so I went and I asked him those questions, how, how can you believe this, and how can you believe that? And I found out, just like many Christians, he was incredibly nominal in his faith, didn't know most of this was even in the Quran, and I talked with him, he had no idea, but he was very nice, he talked with me for hours, and one of the things he said to me was he said, Jesus never claimed to be God. He says, I go to all these ecumenical gatherings with all these Catholic priests and all these Presbyterian ministers and all this, and I always ask them, I say, I say, show me where Jesus Christ claimed to be God, and they never can. I said, would you give me, I've been listening to him for hours about his faith, and I said, would you just give me 10 minutes? I can show you my favorite three times that Jesus Christ claims to be God in such a powerful way that everyone sitting there tries to kill him because they get it. That's what Jesus does. He doesn't stand on a corner down in the city on a soapbox like a nutcase and say, I'm God, everyone, listen to me. Instead, Jesus does these amazing things where he gets people wrapped up in a story, in a situation, and the whole punchline of the whole thing is, surprise, I'm God. And he gets people emotionally wrapped up in it so that they either believe and worship him or try to kill him. And if you don't love the Lord or if you don't hate him, you don't understand who he is. 
If you're saved, you'll love him. If you're going to hell, he will threaten you so much that you'll hate him. And if you're sitting there and if you're apathetic towards him, you don't know who he is. And Paul says the kind of faith that saves us is one that says, Jesus Christ is my Lord. He's my God. And therefore, everything I do is changed by that. If I yell at a customer service rep, I've just disgraced my God. If my heart begins to love laziness or selfishness or any sin more than God, I've just cheated on him. I'm an adulterer. If I stop hoarding my own junk for my own well-being and actually think about others first and begin to give to them, well, then I've become begun to follow one of his commandments and he's changed my life because he's my God. And if... I hear about the job he's given me and I go out and I tell people about the love I have in my heart for him, then I've served him. And if I don't, then I haven't. Belief is more than just admitting that God exists. It's believing him and following those implications in your life. And this belief results in salvation. And what are we saved from? The work will believe the work is important if we actually know and believe what Jesus talks about salvation. What has he done? What are we doing? What's the end result of this work? Believe in your heart that you will be saved, saved from evil. There's so much evil in this world. We live in the most amazing day and age in human history. And yet still there's so much evil. But we do live in the most amazing day and age. I just, I thank God, I thank God that I live in the Midwest in the year 2020. It's still absolutely incredible. There's so much of heaven here. I mean, it's unbelievable. You can go to Sam's Club. You can go to Costco right now. And you can walk to the front. And in the front, they'll have a display. They'll have a display of little teeny chickens that someone has cooked and prepared and heated and seasoned and then distributed and brought and displayed for you for $5. $5 for one of these chickens, and you can buy it and eat it right there. I don't even know what they're called. What are they called? Rotisserie chickens. Thank you. They're amazing. If you came up to me and said, Jeremy, there is a truck, and the truck of rotisserie chickens has come in. Will you go get one for me from the back and bring it to the front so that I can buy it and eat it? I will give you $5 to go get me that chicken. I'd be like, I got other stuff going on. And yet someone has bred that chicken, raised that chicken, kept it warm, kept it safe. They've fed it. They've slaughtered it. They've killed it. They've shipped it. They've cooked it. They've seasoned it. They've prepared it. They've put it in a package. They've heated it for you. And they've brought it to the front for $5. Life couldn't get any better. Life couldn't get any better. But I'm telling you, you just look at the world and we have this incredible thing that happens in the Midwest in 2020. We have so much of heaven here and we have so much to be saved from. And we love to ignore it because we're wealthy and we have that opportunity to do so. What do we do with our elderly people? We sequester them in nursing homes to be cared for by somebody else to die alone apart from us so that we don't have to see or be reminded of it or do it ourselves. We just ignore any evidence of our mortality whatsoever to the point of when we have a bad flu season. 
We literally lose our mind at this point. We're so separated from death. We separate suffering from us so strongly that we lose our mind. We absolutely lose our mind when our health is threatened. We are so scared of evil and death is evil. Death is absolutely evil. And whether somebody dies when they're young or somebody dies when they're old, it doesn't make it any better. When a neighbor who was 104 and died and we praise the Lord, thank you God for taking her. She was suffering so terribly. But that's ultimately not what you want. You want them healed. You want them saved. And we don't want to face the evil. Our godless culture does not want to face it or talk about it. So we try to get rid of it at every instance. There's so much to be saved from. Some of you guys experienced horrible suffering and loved ones dying over the past two years. It's terrible. A few years ago, I had a good friend die from brain cancer. I've never seen such such suffering in my life. It scares the pants off of me. The evil that we face scares the pants off of me. I like to think I'm middle-aged. If I'm middle-aged, I'll live till 80. I'll be happy with that. But I'm telling you, I'm sitting there, I'm like, any day that I get over 50, I'm going to thank the Lord for. And it's coming. And becoming a pastor and being at people's beds as they die, something I never experienced before. And it scares me to death if I didn't know the Lord. I need salvation from this. And Jesus talks about the suffering we encounter in this world. And he says there's suffering coming that's even greater in the next. If we don't like the evil in this world that we're going to experience, the evil in the next is going to be worse. When Jesus comes and he does his miracles, last week we talked about the miracles that he did, how they teach us a little bit about heaven. There'll be no blindness in heaven. Why? We know that. Jesus came and got rid of blindness to show us what heaven is like. It's like, don't you want this? Believe in me. He rid people of spiritual evil. Demonic activity. If you've ever been out of your mind with fear or anxiety or anything like that, like none of this belongs in heaven. Praise the Lord. We'll be delivered from that. Don't you want that? It's fantastic. There's so much evil in this life we experience that I want the Lord from. His work matters. I want his work in my life. And I don't even know the half of it. The evil that's coming is going to be far worse than the evil I experience here. As we're going through Revelation on Wednesday night, it's not just the evil that Satan's going to do to us that we experience, or the suffering that Satan does to us that we experience apart from Jesus Christ, but it's the wrath of God upon sin and evil. And it's no joke. And I look at that, and I look at what a holy God does to people who have rejected him. I don't want to experience that. That'll scare you to consider the Lord as your Savior. If you even consider that this is possible, as you read through the book of Revelation, what an angry God will do against evil. And we also talk about how people who reject God deserve that wrath. Because God is the best thing that there is. In fact, he's the only source of good things. If we reject that, we become fully worthy of not only whatever suffering Satan can do to us, but we also become worthy of whatever God's punishment just and righteous punishment on evil is. And so salvation is important. It's serious. And verse 12 says, 
Now, verse 11 says, For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. Rich and poor, popular and outcast, our God is truly desiring to be completely inclusive of every single one of his people. He wants everyone. And yet people choose evil over God. And we choose evil over God. Every time we sit down and sin, we choose Satan over God. We sit there and we say, God, I know you want me to do this, but I think it's going to be all right if I do this instead. And choosing evil is a condition of the human heart. That's what we need to be saved from. We need to repent of our sin, which makes us worthy of God's judgment. And we need to be saved by the Lord's forgiveness and grace. And verse 13 says, how do we do that? Will you call on the name of the Lord? I had an elderly friend who's just phenomenal. I love that guy. He moved to Arizona a few years ago. When he was a kid, he told me a story that his, in his neighborhood, the houses were very close. And one of his neighbors started cooking or started something late at night and it started a fire and it got out of control and he called the fire department and as the fire department came, he stood out there watching his house burn and as the wind picked up and things happened, he looked and he saw that my friend's house was in danger. And my friend was just a young kid, but he said he'd never forget that. He was like 81 now, but when he was seven, he just remembers his experience of the neighbor coming, running into his home they didn't keep their doors locked back then, thankfully, because he ran in his home screaming, screaming for them to get out of the house. Everybody's got, everybody get out. You're going to burn to death. And he remembers waking up and he got out and he lived. His roof caught on fire. The fire department came. But he remembers thinking, I could have died. I could have burned alive. Our, uh, in our last denomination, there was a pastor who I'd met a few times at different conferences and things like that, played basketball with him before, up in northern Minnesota, whose house caught on fire, and he didn't have time to get out. And the man and his family burned alive. Do you think that work is important? Do you think what that neighbor did was important? to go next door and stop that family from burning to death? And what has the Lord told us? What has the Lord told us is the result of evil? What has the Lord told us is the punishment for evil? We sit there and say, oh, I'm a believer, I'm in church, I'm right with the Lord. But do we believe anything he said? Because have you gone to your neighbors yet? and told them about Jesus. If you understand who you are, and if we understand who the Lord is, and if we understand what he said, we will not be casual Christians. If we know who he is, and we know what he's done, we won't come to church and worship him casually. I sat there and yawned this morning during the second song. I'm tired from the block party. And I see that verse, you rescue me. Well, what do I think he rescues me from? 8% inflation? The chicken's gonna be $6 rather than five next year? First world problems? 
My dryer broke and I got to watch a YouTube video to try to figure out how to get it to go again. My phone, I left it unplugged last night. My life is so hard. We have more problems than I think we imagine. I sit there and I yawn during the thing and I'm singing the song, you rescue me. What am I thinking? He's rescuing me from. If we understand what the Lord has said and if we actually believe it, I think we'll live a little differently than we do. Right now, I've moved for the first time in life. I used to live where I grew up. I always knew all of these unbelievers. I don't know any unbelievers because all I do is hang out with you guys. And it's tons of fun. Let's do it again after the service. But it's been eight months. At some point, I've got no excuse. When am I going to meet some people who don't know the Lord? When I gonna, am I going to tell them about Jesus? And I think it's easier, actually, to get motivated when you look at it. Not only should we be motivated by the punishment that comes from sin and evil, but we should be motivated by the incredible love of God in our life. And I think sometimes the turn and burn type of strategy, it actually works really good. It works really good. People look down on it nowadays. If you ever want to see a great preacher, evangelist, who just gets right to the point, what do you think is going to happen when you die? Listen to Ray Comfort. Go on YouTube, type in Ray Comfort. He does it so well. And he basically just talks about the threat of punishment of God on our lives. But not only should we be motivated by avoiding punishment, like I don't want to suffer from sin, we should be motivated by the experience of God's love and his salvation in our life. Sometimes I think it's easier to be motivated by that threat of punishment because life is so empty, even in the Midwest, even in 2020. Even in the most amazing day and age to live, it's still so empty. We did a sermon series on Ecclesiastes, and we looked at King Solomon who tried to find God apart, or find joy apart from God. And he did all the things that we do. He looked for happiness and money and pleasure and riches and all of these different things that we seek in, in. And he just didn't have our resources. He had enough resources to actually be able to seek it and accomplish it. We say money doesn't bring happiness, and we say, well, give me yours and let me find out. But Solomon actually had the money. He experienced it. He got the money. He got the singers. He got the wives, the concubines, all the drugs, whatever he wanted. He had it. We always think, if I just had a little bit more, then I'd be happy. But Solomon had all that there was, and he wasn't happy. If you didn't hear that sermon series, I'd encourage you to go on and listen to it. We keep all our sermons online, because when I first started, I want to impress you. So I preached all my best sermons first. (laughs) It's all downhill from here. When you experience the joy of the Lord, or you, first of all, you experience the emptiness of the world, <coughs> it ruins you for the world for Jesus. And if you experience the joy of the Lord, it ruins the world for you. I got my first 401k, Roth IRA, tax-free, and I put a lot of money into that thing. I maxed that thing out year after year, and then the stock market took off. I was like, hooray, I'm rich. I'm rich. And if you haven't noticed, last year went right back down. I'm poor. I'm poor. But the whole experience, like, I love the Lord. And I was happy when it went up, but not not significantly. Because why? Well, I know the Lord. I know where true happiness comes from. It's like, oh, you're finding ultimate joy in your money. That's pretty cute. Look at you. Look at you, that's so adorable. When you know the Lord, it gives you strength. It gives you balance. It frees you from addiction because it ruins you from the world. 
can't find ultimate meaning in any of those purposes because I know the Lord. And I've only tasted like that much of them. There's so much more that I've never even experienced. And I want it. I want it now. Last week I shared about how I was healed a little bit. My heart has been healed. I had an irregular heartbeat. It was so bad I couldn't go to bed. I had to take medication for it to go to sleep. And now it's fine. It's better than it was when I was on medication. Praise God. Just a little bit. I want more. I want more of the Lord. And you guys probably experience it every week. I remember, I love working in a church. I'm so blessed. Thank you for having me as your pastor. I remember I used to go work at the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis. And I used to, Monday morning, I'd walk in and I'd go, where did the Lord go? Does he, does he, where did my faith go? What happened? I thank God I work in a church, but I've experienced like that much. And I want more. I want them on Monday mornings. I want to be healed of everything. I want it all. There's not just evil to run from. There's Jesus to run to. And I hope you've experienced some of that. I hope you've experienced some of the salvation of Jesus Christ in this world. I've been saved. Let me tell you a little bit about my salvation. Let me tell you. I woke up the other morning and I couldn't get out of bed. I couldn't get out of bed because I remembered that meaning in life is all a mirage. It's just subjective. We just make it up ourselves like a story. We just make it up ourselves to motivate us to go through life. Love doesn't even exist. Love is some chemicals in the brain that those who believed in it, those who had those chemicals, had an evolutionary adaptive advantage and survived better. That's why we all think love exists. It's complete nonsense. I remembered this. And I couldn't get out of bed because there was no point. I remembered all the people around me. They had no hope for a future. They came from dust, from nowhere, for nothing, to ultimately for no purpose. Everyone I love, everyone I have this little foolish chemical reaction, for, they're all just going to die. That's it. Me, my wife, my kids, you. It's all futile. It's all pointless. I remembered this. Oh, wait, no, that wasn't me. That wasn't me the other day. That was me before I knew the Lord Jesus Christ. I've literally been saved from that insanity. Now I get up and instead I remember I've got meaning every day. I haven't woken up like that. In, in how old am I? I'm getting old now. It's been a long time. It's been 18 years since I woke up, 19 years since I woke up like that. Now I wake up and I remember that every day of my life, I've got incredible meaning and purpose. All of the ways that I fail, the Lord will forgive me for, every single one of them. And when I meet him face to face, I won't answer for any of those things. He's taken care of all of that. Instead, I'll receive his good pleasure for me in all the ways I've served him. So every morning I've got incredible meaning because I have the opportunity to serve him in some way whether big or small. And even if it is small, even if I manage to only follow him in a small way that day, I will get to stand before him and I will receive his pleasure. And God is eternal. And even his pleasure for a small thing, for eternity, is something incredibly meaningful that I want. I've been saved and it feels so good that not only do I want more of it, but I want to share it with you. And I want to share it with others because it's so much better. Do you know the importance of the work that God has given? He's put out a help wanted ad. Have you experienced that? If not, then you need to. 
Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Don't just believe there's a God out there. Make Jesus Christ your Lord. Verse 14 says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And these are all rhetorical questions. Paul loves rhetorical questions. The answer to this, the answer to all of those rhetorical questions is what? It's you. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? You. How are they to believe in him who they have not heard? You. And how are they with how are they to hear without someone preaching? Well, obviously, the rhetorical answer to that question that Paul meant is, God will just send them a vision. It'll be fine. It'll, there'll be no loss here. It'll be all right. God is faithful. We'll sit on our bum and do nothing. And we'll wait for him to do it all. No, the answer is you. How will they preach unless they're not sent? Who shared the gospel with you? When I was little, it was my mom and those amazing child care ministers at church. If you serve in the nursery, if you serve in the children's ministry, it's one of the most fabulous ways that you can serve the Lord. That's how I first learned about the Lord. Then when I got older, and I realized I didn't have any faith, and I lived without faith, and then realized I wanted faith, it was the people at the church camp I went to. They preached the gospel to me. And then when I got saved and got on fire for the Lord, it was my college friends who preached the gospel to me so that little weed wouldn't grow up and then die in the heat. And who preached the gospel to you? And God is big enough, he's strong enough to do anything. But God has never wanted to do this by himself. He's always wanted to do it with you. He's taken out an ad He's put it in the want ads. And we read about it this morning. He's asked us to do it. We need to talk more in this sermon series about what we say. What do we tell people? And we're going to get to that in future weeks. And this week, ask yourself, do I believe it's important? Do I believe what the Bible actually says? And does my life reflect that? And if not, why? Why?